Good morning. That's kind of a wimpy good morning. Shall we try it one more time? Good morning. All right, you're alive. Good. This is uh, lesson three in our study of the uh, epistles to the Thessalonians. I, uh, you know, I love to play with titles, and so I uh, actually I'm on this psychobabble theme for a lesson or two. If you think this one's bad, next week is was Paul codependent. Um, obviously, I probably won't be going down the traditional trails. But I, I do want to explain a little bit why I uh, selected the title that I did. I know we could call this Lessons on Leadership, and that would certainly not be a, a bad title for our text. But the thing that's interesting to me is that when Paul describes his spiritual leadership, and, and I say that in the singular, you know that he's speaking on his behalf, on behalf of Silvanus and for Timothy as well. But when Paul speaks about his spiritual leadership, he likens himself to a father. So, of course, that's a red-hot topic for, for this Sunday. But he also likens himself to a nursing mother. And so I think what we have to do is ask ourselves the question, why is it that Paul has to make reference to motherly qualities as well as fatherly qualities to describe his ministry? And I suspect that may say that our ideas about leadership need a little revision. And so that's why I chose my topic, and I'll see if I can justify that uh, as we proceed in this lesson. When you think about chapter 1, you uh, think back on Paul's expressions of gratitude toward God and confidence with respect to these Thessalonian saints for the way in which they have manifested faith and faithfulness in their lives in spite of the fact that they have had adverse circumstances, persecution, a short span of Paul's ministry, and then, of course, a forced absence from Paul, and resistance uh, satanically from Paul returning to them to minister to them further. So these are not ideal circumstances. This is not the finest soil. I'm reminded of my grandmother's garden. She literally, she had a garden in a rock pile. I would go out there and look, and I wondered, in all that gravel, where in the world anything found enough dirt to grow. I tell you the truth. You know how she made her money? a gravel company came and started hauling it off for gravel. And there wasn't much good soil there. That's what I look at when I see the Thessalonians. It looks to me like this is just gravel. And How would you have a garden in gravel? But Paul is confident in what God has done and what God will continue to do. He starts with divine election and shows all the evidences of God's work in that church. Now in chapter 2, he's going to pick up on a statement that was very briefly stated in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, You knew what kind of men we proved to be in your presence. Now Paul's going to talk about those evidences of God's working through the messengers to bring about the impact of the message uh, that it did in the lives of the Thessalonians. 
And then we'll look in our text and we'll see verses 1 through 12 are really a description of God's work in their leaders, in these three men, and the characteristics, I would say, that they manifest of motives and methods which are the kinds of things that ought to characterize Christian leaders. And then in verses 13 through 16, he talks about the impact or the effect of that ministry on the Thessalonians. I initially somewhat agonized about whether to include those verses because, A, I'm windy and I didn't know if I had enough time to cover them, and B, I wasn't sure about the relationship of those verses to the preceding 12 verses. I now settled that in my mind. I've sold everything but the windy part, and I don't know what to do about that. Now, my approach in this lesson is going to be a little bit different in the sense that I want to go through those 12 verses and talk about the characteristics of, of Paul and his colleagues as spiritual leaders. But one of the things that struck me as I was working my way through this text is these characteristics of Paul and his colleagues are the exact opposite of the characteristics of false teachers in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Jeremiah talks about the, the false shepherds. You look at those characteristics. You look at Matthew 23, John chapter 10, the good shepherd. And then you look at Second Peter and you look at Jude and Second Timothy. And you see all of these warnings about false teachers, false apostles, false prophets. And so I decided that what I would do is I would talk about these qualities of Paul but do so against the backdrop of those false apostles that we can see so that you see one is contrasted with the other. Then I'll deal with those last verses, verses 13 through 16, and then I want to get to the conclusion. And I have to tell you, this is one message where I can hardly wait to get to the conclusion. This looks like an innocuous text. It, in my mind, is one of the most powerful texts on ministry and missions that I can think about. It is also one of the most powerful texts on Christian leadership that I can find in the Scriptures. So I hope that you will agree with me as we uh, as we move ahead in that. But let's focus on verses 1 through 12 for a moment. We could call this, uh, although I don't have it on the screen, Paul and Religious Hucksters. I think I got that term from Dr. Toussaint years ago when he was doing a, a message in 2 Corinthians, but it's a great title. There is an aura of spirituality, but these are not true uh, Christians, and they are leading people astray and for all the wrong reasons. So it's, uh, it's that that I think we see Paul contrast, contrasting himself with. And remember, these people have seen their share of hucksters. They've seen their share uh, of those people. I can't remember the title of the book, which one of Mark Twain's books it is, but he and Huck Finn are going down the Mississippi River, and he uses the term missionary-ing. You remember that, anybody? Oh, please. I think you're right. Thanks, uh, That's Emil. I think you're absolutely right. And, and the, the term, what, why he uses that term is they go around from town to town talking about ministry to the heathen abroad. And they're taking up offerings and lining their pockets. That's really what these guys are. They're hucksters who are uh, gaining at the expense of the people that they prey upon. 
So look at the first characteristic of, uh, of a true leader, and that's in verses 1 and 2. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. By the way, I, I noticed Kurt read from the Net Bible, purposeless. All right, scratch it out, and I'll tell you why. One, it doesn't often mean that, if it does. And it's not that, the, the, that he's saying there was no purpose. The question is whether there was any fruit. And so what he's saying is, our coming to you was not fruitless. You could come without a purpose and be fruitful, or you could come with a purpose and be unfruitful. What he's saying is, our coming to you was not a loss. And the reason it wasn't a loss is because of how God worked through his word and through the messengers of his word and through the recipients of that word to produce the fruit that he did. So he's again saying to them, our coming to you, even though we were there for only a short period of time, our coming to you was a very fruitful mission. That's the way he looked at it in chapter 1. That's what he's going to buttress in in chapter 2. But then he says... After we had already, I underscored that in my Bible, suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst amidst much opposition. One of the tests of a true messenger of God is what they do with persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel that they bear. Now, There are a lot of texts that we could look at that talk about that quality uh, in the Christian's life. 1 Peter chapter 2, he speaks about uh, to slaves, about suffering unjustly. And he says, Christ gave you the example in that he silently suffered so that he might save us from our sins. Great example for us. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17 Paul rejoices in his suffering, and he says it's like the icing on the cake. If he can suffer for the Philippians' benefit, then praise God, he says, for it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Paul rejoices in his sufferings, that he may fill up the sufferings of Christ. So a true apostle accepts suffering as a reality of life, and he accepts it joyfully, willingly, Uh, for the sake of the gospel. You see in uh, John chapter 10, the, the comparison or the contrast between those two, Jesus says he is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep, suffering. What does the hireling do when he sees the wolf? He hits the trail because he's a hireling. He's only in it for himself. And when things get tough, he gets out. That's the false uh, teacher. I guess my favorite text is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 through 29. Remember that Paul has been leading up to this through 1 Corinthians and then again in 2 Corinthians, and he finally just blurts it out at the end. These people are false apostles. They are messengers of Satan. They are masquerading as something that they are not. And now he's going to contrast himself with them. They are obviously, at least most of them, Jewish in their in their ethnicity. And so he says in verse 22, are they Hebrews? The assumption is they are. 
So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, we're going to find out. He says, I speak as though I'm insane. They're obviously not. How does he distinguish himself from them? All of the following verses deal with the adversity that he has undergone, the price that he has paid, the suffering he has endured for the sake of the gospel. Imprisonments, lashings, beaten with rods, stones, shipwrecked, and dangers from rivers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city. He's paid the price. That's the mark of a true apostle, a true messenger. They are willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see in verses 3 through 5, Paul's motives and his methods. He says, For our, ex- our exhortation does not come from error or impurity. That's an interesting word, and, and, it's, and it's handled in different ways. It may be used generically. It often, as it does in chapter 4, have a sense of sexual immorality. And I would simply say, if you remember when Paul says in 2 Timothy, false teachers have their way of sort of weaseling their way in with weak women who are burdened down with sin. And if you look at 2 Peter and Jude, immorality, they have eyes full of adultery. There is something about false teachers and immorality that goes hand in hand. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Not from error, not from impurity, and not by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is a witness. We did not seek glory from men. He understands and he perceives his ministry as that of a steward. His message has come from God. His mission is to convey that message for God. And his task is not to please men with the message. It is not to win men's applause. Tom was talking about being at camp and and having to share the gospel message and, and how some people might respond to that and say, that's not what I want to hear. Our job isn't to tell people what they want to hear. Our job is to tell people, as stewards of the gospel, what God says they need to hear and understand that may bring adverse reaction, like we see in verses 1 and 2. So here you have the purity of motivation, the mindset of a steward who is not in it for self-serving purposes, whether that be greed or glory or whatever it is, When leaders find themselves in the spotlight, there are all kinds of temptation, and I say that generically. Leaders, whether they are Christians, whether they are non-Christians, leadership brings within it certain innate temptations. Go to Washington, D.C., or watch on television, and you'll see the kinds of things that fall upon leaders. And Paul is saying, those things do not characterize us. There is a purity in our motive. And because there is a purity in our, in our motive, there is a purity in our message. And because there is a purity in the message, there is also a purity and simplicity in our methods. So that people don't listen to what we say and come away saying, wasn't he great? 
As Paul said, when you hear that message, you receive it as the word of God. You understand this is God's message through clay pots, through human instruments. But the methods that Paul used are neither deceitful nor are they self-glorifying. Now, look at uh, Paul's conduct and spiritual authority as you see it in, uh, in verses 6 through 8. We did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives, because you are very dear to us. Authority brings with it its own sets of difficulties. I think about David in the Old Testament, and it seems to me that his best work was when he was being chased by Saul. And once he found himself in a position of authority and he began to think in those terms, there were problems that came David's way that God had to deal with. The same could be said for Solomon. Some of that has to do with arrogance. Some of it has to do with the mindset that our Lord had to deal with in his disciples who wanted to know who was first in command after Jesus, who would sit at the right hand and who would sit at the left. And Jesus said, in secular were in the secular realm, authority is the place that you are in in order to be served. In the kingdom of God, authority is the place of service. There is the mindset of a servant here rather than of a Lord. And Jesus had to come down hard on his disciples because of that very thing. He says, we could have asserted our own authority. Now, you know there are times for the sake of the gospel that Paul has to lean on his apostolic authority. Read Galatians chapter 1. You'll find that Paul can be tough and he can assert his authority. But it is not for the sake of cementing some position and status for himself. It is to defend the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he does not assert his apostolic authority, as we're going to find out in just a moment, by somehow demanding that because he's an apostle, everybody see to it, he's well taken care of. He said, our authority was not used in that way. It was used in service. This is where he comes to the analogy of the nursing mother. Now, I've been not a participant in that. I've been a spectator, but... Because uh, my wife uh, breastfed our, our, our girls and, and many of our girls did their, their children. I, I've watched from a distance in the sense that really you don't get anything out of it. <laughs> oh, I suppose there's a little, there's a little bit of gratification, but the reality is the child gets everything and the mother gives everything. As somebody used to say to us, you pump it in one end and you scrape it off the other. There's not a lot of glory in that. And, and somehow those babies, they want to be fed in the middle of the night. And, and so that means that mother has to get up and she has to devote herself to that child. But what I'm saying is you could take three words that would sum up the ministry of a nursing mother. Give, give, and give. That's what it's all about. And Paul says, that's the way we were. 
to you. We were not there expecting you to give, give, give to us. Our life was characterized by our giving of ourselves to you in selfless ways. And of course, they were babes in Christ, and he was feeding them milk at the earliest stage. But he uses that analogy, and I think rightly so, of that, if you want to call it that, the feminine side. I hate that expression. But, but the gentle side of Paul. When you see the false teachers were those who run roughshod over the sheep, whether that's Old Testament or New, there is an authoritarian kind of mindset. Remember again, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, if these people come and they insult you and they push you around and they slap you in the face, you love it. And then he says, we're just weaklings by comparison because we are meek and give ourselves to you. So there is a difference between the messengers of the gospel and those who are religious hucksters. Now comes this part of uh, that I suppose is important and critical to me in his labor to support himself and others. Notice verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Maybe that's the way in which you would see this nursing mother image played out with the apostle. Here's, here's kind of the way I see it. As I look at Paul's ministry in Athens and, and later in Acts chapter 17, and I overlay that with his ministry in Thessalonica, I see Paul going to the, uh, to the synagogue in Thessalonica for three consecutive Sabbaths, proclaiming the gospel, but I also see him going into the marketplace, and as he says, he labored there night and day. So I see it sort of like going to the farmer's market. Have you ever watched some of those folks? Now, I always liked it down the farmer's market, but sometimes what you'll see is people who are selling their goods are making their goods while they wait for customers to come, and so you get to watch them do their, their, their work. And it seems to me that what happened is Paul just didn't go down to the marketplace and stand around with his hands in his pocket or sit at Starbucks waiting for people to drop in. He was there... And, and he found himself a stall, so to speak, where he would do his labor of tent making. And it was in the context of him working away, sitting side by side with other people, that he was doing his teaching, doing his discipleship work, doing all of that. But at the same time, he's manifesting that he is not there in some parasitical sort of way sapping from them, he in, instead is giving to them. Now, let me stop, do a pause for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Timothy chapter 5 makes it clear that the servant is worthy of his hire. 1 Corinthians 9 makes it clear that as an apostle, Paul could have, as other apostles did, live off of the income that those people should have provided. But Paul's point is there are some who will think about religious people in terms of all they want is my money and all they'd have to do if they had televisions was turn them on and see it. I don't know how much of our mail comes, but I would say 90%, if not higher, 
of the mail that comes to us from Christian organizations wants our money. It's just, it's right there. Now, I'm not saying they don't need money. I'm not saying that's all bad. I'm saying that when you see only money soliciting going on, you can understand how unbelievers say to themselves, my back, don't these guys ever do anything other than talk about money? And don't they want anything more than money? Sometimes evangelicals aren't even wise about who they ask to support their work. So Paul is saying, I'm going to set myself apart. I'm going to voluntarily set that aside, and I'm going to labor for your benefit. I'm working night and day, providing for myself and providing for you. And we know from 1 Corinthians 9, Acts chapter 20, and other places, this wasn't the exception. Acts chapter 18, remember Paul starts a tent making with a couple who were, were engaged in the same thing. This was a fairly normal thing. Now, there were times when gifts were sent where Paul could devote himself totally to the ministry of the word. Nothing wrong with that. But Paul is doing something here which is very significant and it surely sets him apart from all of the religious hucksters who have the offering plate very, very near. I should say this too. When you think about the work that Paul did, it was menial. It was menial work. I, I oftentimes hear people, young people especially, saying, you know, I, I want, not only do I want a well-paying job with great benefits, but I want one that is fulfilling, you know, that I just feel so good about. I, I, I just can't see Paul going home at, at night and, and somebody saying to him, well, how did it go? You know, making tents is so fulfilling. I just feel really good about this job. Hey, folks, it's, it's a menial job, but it, it is the avenue through which Paul has incredibly significant and profound ministry. And he delights in, in being able to do that to uh, support others. Okay, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, Let's talk about Paul's masculine side, if we can. He is like a father training up his children in verses 11 and 12. Notice, exhorting, encouraging, imploring. I see in the Net Bible, insisting. I would scratch that word out, too. And I'll tell you why. I think that Paul has made a point of saying he does not use his authority in an authoritarian manner. As a father, he is carrying out his fatherly responsibility of guiding, training up his children. But notice that these are all exhortational terms. You cannot force a child to be godly. You cannot command a child to be godly. You can exhort and encourage and implore as you present the claims of Christ. But if you believe salvation is God's work, then friends... A lot of parenting is not preaching, it's praying. Is that not right? By the way, that's what the apostles did. They prayed and they preached because they knew it was God that had to bring that word to bear. By the way, doesn't that sound sort of Proverbs-like when you think about this and, and you see this Paul speaking not only here of himself as a father, he speaks of his relationship to Timothy in father-like terms, and Proverbs speaks in father-like terms, and it's really exhorting and encouraging and imploring people to follow the right path.
path. Let's talk about the Thessalonians' response to Paul's ministry. First, he says, they received that ministry and they received those words that were proclaimed as though they were the word of God. I think that that speaks volumes about what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I didn't come to you with profound speech and all this, because I came in fear and trembling, depending that God would bring that message to bear. Second, uh, Second Corinthians chapter uh, two. At the end, he says, "We don't catch with bait. We don't use uh, 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 devices that somehow subtly suck you in uh, to the truth. We present the truth simply." Chapter four. He talks about being stewards and being faithful in terms of the proclamation of the word. That's what Paul has done. And so when the Spirit of God, as we read in chapter 1, when the Spirit of God empowers the Word and authenticates the Word, and the messenger has been clear to speak as an ambassador, I guess that's really one of the things I would say. An ambassador says to you, I am speaking for somebody else. An ambassador speaks for God. An arrogant man speaks like God. And that's where the trouble starts. And so he says, I spoke to you in this way, and you received it as the word of God. Right on. And then he says, you became imitators. He says, you became imitators of your Judean brothers. And I pointed this out to you earlier. But here it is clear that the persecution they are experiencing and enduring joyfully is not primarily Jewish opposition. It is Gentile opposition because he says, you became like your Judean brothers. They suffered at the hands of their Jewish brethren. And their Jewish brethren persecuted them because they didn't want the gospel going to Gentiles, which is, of course, what the Thessalonians, at least many of them, were. But he says, you were like them You have suffered at the hand of your countrymen. I take that to mean Gentiles who are offended, whether that's the idol makers that you see in Ephesus or other people, that you endure that suffering from the hands of your own people. So you're like the Judeans. But more than that, and that's this is where I finally came to embrace verses 13 to 16 as a part of this text is when I looked at verses 13 through 16 and I see here are people who have accepted Paul's message as God's word and they have joyfully accepted the suffering that comes for trusting in Jesus. They're just like Paul in verses 1 and 2. Isn't that really true? That the the student, Jesus says, imitates the teacher, the master, And that's why it is so important, not only what our message is, but what our methods are. And when Paul embraces suffering as part of the price that he must joyfully pay to take the gospel, when these people catch that message, they imitate it. And they joyfully suffer, and it's that suffering which then spreads the gospel abroad. I'm going to raise some questions about our missionary methods in a minute because it seems to me if Paul had done something else, there would have been problems. So let's get to the application. I've been itching to get there and now we're there. Question number one. 
Does persecution justify decreasing our openness in proclaiming Christ? That's a huge question. That is a huge question. I think I've, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. One of my brothers in Indonesia took me aside and he said, what do you think about lying? And I said to him, what do you mean? He said, I mean, lying about who you are and what you're doing. What he was saying is, what do you think about being deceitful to be a missionary? What do you think about putting up a front that is not really true? And the reality is, folks, unless you think people are incredibly stupid, they know. They know who you really are. So what do you gain by compromising the gospel? I thought about this. What does this do for the glory of God? If we cower at the, ons- uh, at the onslaught of persecution and opposition, if we cower so that we compromise the message and we compromise our methods, what does it say about the glory of the God who gave us that message to preach? It seems to me it speaks volumes. We dare not compromise. Trust me, I, I am not a missionary expert. I, I don't understand the subtleties. I'm not here to criticize uh, people that I don't know and don't understand. But I've got to tell you, there's a lot of sneakiness going on in missions. And I don't see it here. You see, I see people who watched Paul not only come from suffering, but come into suffering at Thessalonica and boldly endure it joyfully. And those people knew what was coming for them. And they, as they embraced that gospel, imitated Paul and their testimony went forth. And I'm simply saying, if we get sneaky and too subtle about our, our, our gospel message, second generation and third generation are going to tell it uh, in bad ways. Here, the second generation repeats what they saw in Paul in his boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. I've, I've quoted him before, but I remember John Piper saying, there is no closed country to somebody who's willing to die for their faith and the proclamation of it. There is no closed country to people who are willing to die. Only people who are not willing to suffer, then it's closed. Second, or B, what biblical leadership looks like? Well, number one, it rejects the macho mentality of leadership. I, I see that. I, I don't know how many times I've had somebody tell me, especially young women, I want a man who is a spiritual leader. And oftentimes what they really crave is some kind of an autocrat. And I'm thinking, I don't think you really want that at all. And by the way, after they get married, they sure don't. I can tell you that. They really don't. Spiritual leadership is not some kind of macho thing where you push your weight around and, and it, it, because that's not what Paul was like. Yes, there is a boldness and a tenaciousness not to compromise on the gospel, not to fold under persecution, but there is a gentleness in the sense of not pressing that authority and forcing people down uh, because of it or by means of it. Lots of macho mentality going on in the, in the whole realm, Christian-wise, 
of being a husband, a spiritual leader, being a father. Watch out for the macho mentality. Leadership is about sovereignty, God's sovereignty, about stewardship, sacrificial servanthood, and suffering. Now, that's almost the same as one of the great books on spiritual leadership. I think it's Oswald Sanders uh, that wrote that book, and he had three out of those four. But the reality is, if you understand, as Paul does it, that God is the one who is sovereign, that ought to really change your mindset about who you are. And that makes you a steward uh, rather than a lord. And it ought to lead to sacrificial servanthood. And by the way, that's pretty rare. When you get to Philippians chapter 2, I think it's about verse 17 and following, where Paul it first set out, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ. And then he talks about the, the humility of our Lord and so on. We all know that text. When he comes to Timothy, he says... I'm going to send Timothy to you because he's a man who genuinely places your concerns above his own. He's like what I was talking about with Jesus. Timothy is. And he says, I have no man like him to send. Now think about that. He's not saying the whole unbelieving world is self-centered and self-seeking. He's saying the church is full of people who are self-centered and self-seeking. Timothy is a man like Paul who cares more about other people and sacrificially gives himself in service to them and gladly endures suffering. Those are themes that I would encourage you to pursue. You will probably not encourage me to pursue them at this moment. Thirdly, leaders practice what they preach. If the message that we proclaim is not the message that we practice, then you might as well forget the message. The Thessalonians not only heard the word, they saw the word. Paul lived what he taught. And those people lived what they saw and heard him teach. Leaders are to be both tough and tender. Not not tough versus tender or tender versus tough. They are to be tough and tender. They have to decide where are the places where I must be tough. You better be tough on doctrinal purity. Read Galatians if you get a little soft. (laughs) It'll get toughened up right away. Uh, It's like a vitamin pill on toughness. But there are times that we need to be tender as well. And, And I think we do not, when we think about Paul, we think of him primarily as tough. But he is also tender. He gives himself like a nursing mother to his church. We need to be both. And I want to talk about that now in the next point, about wives and mothers and tenderness. I think there is the mentality in in some Christians that it's the husband who's to be tough and the wife who is to be tender. And so the wife is the offset. Now, I would say to you in a functional, practical way, that's probably true. I'm not sure it's good, but it's probably true. Now, I suspect that you want to get into maleness and femaleness. There's probably all kinds of stuff you can do with that. But I think that that women are given to men not only to offset their toughness, I think they're given to men to teach them tenderness. Now, let let me give you an illustration. Abigail and David, 1 Samuel chapter 25. David's running from Saul. He's been hiding out in the mountains, taking care of 
of Nabal, that means fool, Abigail's husband, been taking care, watching out for his shepherds and his sheep. And when David then asks for a a, a gift, a celebratory gift, Nabal says, no way. And he knew who David was. He said he didn't, but he knew who he was. How do you name his father and not know who he is? Abigail knew that David was to be the next king. David was hopping mad, and I would say hot-headed. He was too tough, if you want to put it in those terms. He's going to go down there, and he's going to kill off every male because he's been snubbed by Nabal. Abigail comes to him, and she says, You know what, David? I believe, like you do, that you're the next king of Israel. Israel's next king is not a man who has blood on his hands. When you become king, if you do this bloody thing, it will haunt your administration. You need to act prudently and graciously in a way that characterizes the kingdom that God's going to give to you. She taught David some tenderness when he was thinking tough. And she was right. So what I would suggest to you is, husbands, don't just leave it to your wives to be tender and you keep being tough. I would suggest that your wife's tenderness is like spiritual gifts. And that is, the gifts that other people have that we don't are not just given for them to do what we don't want to do. They are given to them to teach us to do what we're not inclined to do, but we can do better. So, on this Father's Day, men, I don't think I'm going to tell you to toughen up. I might tell you that you need to tenderize just a bit. I do, at least. The qualities of spiritual leadership apply to fathers, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Church leaders, elders and deacons. Do you notice? These things that Paul is talking about will be the very things that Paul will say should be character qualities of deacons and elders. And I think one can argue, although I don't want to try to do it today, that those qualities that ought to mark out elders and deacons are qualities for which all of us should strive, and therefore it applies to all of us. Here's the good part. All of these qualities we've seen in Paul that are contrasted with false apostles are seen best in Jesus. Are they not? The qualities of toughness and tenderness are seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to look to him primarily. And when we look at the scriptures, the scriptures encourage us to be the kind of men Paul was, the kind of men we ought to be because of the kind of man Jesus was and continues to be. I wanted to talk about false leaders. When you understand the things about which Paul is speaking in chapter 2, you'll have a nose for false teachers. Let me tell you, when you see the qualities of spiritual leadership and then you see a false leader, it's really not that hard to tell. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. And he's speaking about false prophets in that text in Matthew 7. Tough and tender in the gospel. Well, I I needed to bring that point around. Romans chapter 11. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. Exodus chapter 34, a text that I thought about bringing up this morning in our worship time. Let me see thy glory. What is the glory of God? It's not some visible appearance. It is his character. And it is his mercy 
his compassion and his justice. Is it not? Is that not what you have? If that's true, then God's glory is both tough and tender. Jesus Christ has borne the toughness. We may put that analogy out. And he has offered us the tenderness. Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus offers to us the tenderness of God's mercy, compassion, and forgiveness because Jesus has endured the toughness of the cross. If we reject that message, my friend, then we will find the toughness of God as he comes to deal with sin and with sinners. That's the reality of the Gospels. You have toughness and tenderness. You may take your pick, but I would recommend tenderness far and above toughness. About work. Oh, this is really getting to where I'm getting warmed up now. It's a curse. Sounds like monk. And a blessing. (laughs) If any of you watch that. It is a curse, as you see in Genesis chapter 3. But it's also a blessing. It is God's means of providing for our needs and for the needs of others. Is that not true? Work is the way in which God has provided to meet uh, our needs. You see that is true of everyone. That's what we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and following. By the way, Paul's willingness to work hard and not mooch off other people is what gave him the credentials to say what he does in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If a man doesn't work, neither does he eat. A man who works, labors day and night has the right to say that. And certainly Paul does. But Ephesians chapter 4 is a very interesting text. Let him who stole steal no more, but let him labor with his own hands that he has that to give to those who are in need. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4 is, one of the evidences of salvation is that your mindset changes. Now you are not praying not P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. Now you are not praying on others, but you are praying for others, and you are giving to them rather than taking from them. That also is true for preachers, by the way. In 1 Timothy 5, when he says, let him who, who is uh, uh, worthy of double, uh, the, the elder who rules well is worthy of de- double honor, especially him who works hard at preaching and teaching. Hard work is what all of us need to do, preachers included. It is the God-appointed means of proclaiming, or I should say a God-appointed means of proclaiming the gospel. When I see what Paul is doing, yes, I see him in the synagogue preaching. I see him in the marketplace, working with his hands and in the context of his labors, not only preaching Christ, but discipling new believers as he is in intimate contact with them. That's why Paul can say to these people, you know these things are true. They didn't say to him, oh yeah, I remember, I saw you on church, in church at Sabbath. They, they, they saw him day and night as he labored among them and labored for them and with them. Here's how, here's how I see it working in terms of proclaiming the gospel. It sets those who proclaim Christ apart from the hucksters. That's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 9. 
For all those people who think ministers are in it for the money, then let them prove it uh, is not true. I'll tell you a quick story, and I know we're running out of time. But years ago, back in our old building, there was a, a, a visitor that came, and, and I went back to the back, and I met them, and I shook their hand, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, what else do you do? And I said, what do you mean? He said, look at your hands, man. Look at your hands. <laughs> well, I think I'd been rebuilding an engine about that point in time, and that probably wasn't much pretty to look at. But, you know, there's something about that. I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be your hands, but it seems to me there's something about looking at somebody who proclaims the gospel and seeing in them somebody who sweats, somebody who works hard at what they do. That authenticates, I think, a lot of things and sets you apart from some of the riffraff of uh, religious hucksters. It proves that our, our ministry isn't for money. It puts Christians in places where their faith is transparent and real. It's where people live. That's where we ought to be, is where they work. And it provides cost-free ministry. Here's my big one. Business's mission, the new wave, but it's really an old Pauline idea. It's one of the, the, the things that people are talking about now is the way in which you use business in order to proclaim the gospel in other places. What do you do, for example, in a closed country? Well, I'll tell you one thing you can do. You can get a skill that is so valuable they won't throw you out, even though they know you're a Christian. One of my brother's professors was involved in the Green Revolution, and he not only was welcomed in India, where he got them one more crop a year uh, because of the technology, he was welcomed in Tunisia as well. He had a Bible study in his home where 50 kids or so would gather every, every weeknight, every Wednesday night, I guess it was, and, and, uh, and the authorities knew what he was doing, but they wouldn't touch him because he was too valuable with what he had to offer. He was not looked at as, as a parasite. He was looked at as a producer, which had valuable things to, uh, to offer. I, I've been thinking lately about, about being strategic in what we do, and I'd like to suggest to you that business as missions is a strategic way for us to think and act and... and uh, let me just give you some ideas. Here we are. We've got a huge uh, oil spill. What do you suppose would happen if an evangelical, hardworking, straight-thinking guy had a solution for capping that well or for dealing with all the oil that's come out? You think you'd get a hearing? I reckon you would. What about in our hard economic times? Remember? Uh, Pharaoh was headed and Egypt were headed for hard economic times. Suppose that we had a Joseph who came along and said, you know what, I think I see the solution, and it's this. Do you think he'd get a hearing? I think he would. Or a Daniel, when things are tough politically uh, in Washington, D.C. What if you had somebody who was in the workplace who was out there in a productive way and had great ideas that would benefit our country or benefit another country, do you think they'd have a hearing? I think they would. And what I'm saying is that we, we've tended to say to young Christians, especially those who look, serious, uh, uh, look seriously at their faith, to say, well, are you going to go to seminary? Maybe they should. Maybe they shouldn't. I don't know. But why are we not saying to them, you ought to be thinking strategically about how God will use you in this world. And it may be 
because you excel in the work that you do. Proverbs, remember, 22, 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. Maybe we need some more skilled people. And that says to me, I know I'm jumping all over that chart, but I don't care. That says to me, we better not be saying it's only a job. If you're saying that, my friend, you've missed the point. It is not only a job. It is the place where your faith is manifested. It is the place where your faith can be declared. It is the place where you may have an impact that is far greater than full-time Christian ministry. It wasn't, it wasn't something Paul rejected. And I don't, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I think in our culture, in our Christian culture, I think that many people are. And I'm saying you ought to be thinking just as seriously about how your work can impact the world with the gospel as how some ministry can do it. And with all the closed countries we're facing, I think the new wave is going to be business. I've been told about someone who has business ventures in North Korea. Have you tried to get there lately? If you had something that contributed to that country, they'll open the doors because they want you and they'll put up with the gospel because they want what you have to offer. We ought to be, those of us who are in the workplace, we ought to be working hard and we ought to be doing well at what we do, whether it's menial or not. We ought to be seeking to do well at our job so that that becomes a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ and its impact in us. For those of us who are otherwise, maybe we need to get our hands dirty sometimes and just demonstrate that we can do other things besides stand up and talk to people. might even be worth something from time to time. That's not a bad thing either. So I would suggest to you that Paul's words here are very, very relevant to us. Not only about leadership, but about work and the value of that work in terms of promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a businessman here or you're a a blue-collar worker, don't you dare think of yourself as a second-class Christian. You may be the one that God is going to lift up and use in a powerful way that some of the rest of us would never even imagine. One last thing. Isn't it interesting that God's been sending people forth, not just missionaries from our body, but workers? Bob, you're next. We're sending you out. And the question will be, how's God going to use that strategically, your work, to impact our world for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I believe he is. I believe God wants to use people and their work to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Help us in whatever you have given us to do to work hard to manifest the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Help us not to think about it just as a job, but as our ministry, as our stewardship before you. Help us, Father, as fathers, to be the kinds of leaders that we ought to be, the kind of leaders that Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus were And most of all, the kind of leader that our Lord Jesus is. There's anyone here who has never trusted in him. Father, may you enable them to respond to the tenderness of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.